Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Close the Hello, I'm Graeme Simpson. I am the Seekers' representative as well as the historian and biographer. And I'm Christopher Patrick, author of the book ABBA Let the Music Speak, a forensic look at ABBA's music, published in 2008, and very happily co-author with my colleague Graeme Simpson on the book The Seekers, the 50-year recorded history of Australia's first supergroup. thing with Seekers Tours is that um, initially in 1993, the Silver Jubilee uh, reunion tour was to be a one-off. In fact, right at the very start, it wasn't even to be a tour. The the idea was to celebrate 25 years uh, with one big concert, maybe at the bowl. But then the reaction from the industry was um, such that it led the group to think that they probably needed to do a bit more than that because people were saying, people in the industry were saying to them, look, this is the first time in 25 years. You've never been in the same room together pretty much. Um, and people, the demand is there because your back catalogue just keeps selling. So what they did was they put 10 shows, I think, on sale, or it might have been six, one in each city. Well, in fact, they preempted the tour by doing... Uh, a non-public run uh, for Ford, the Ford Motor Group. They had their ball in the December in every state, and the Seekers were the guests. So that was their uh, uh, rehearsal almost for the tour. Then they put the tour on sale, which was one show public uh, in every state. So long story short, that ended up being 110 concerts. You know, they did, I think, 10 nights at Hamer Hall in Melbourne. It's unthinkable, really. Uh, And that ended up being a um, live recording and a DVD, uh, which was uh, released by Universal um, uh, with really nicely, beautifully packaged as well. And they decided to take that a step further and, and look af- uh, internationally afield to see... Yeah, well, they took that tour to the United Kingdom. But then in 1994, the following year, the demand was there so much that the, they did that tour and they called it Our Last Goodbye. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, I don't know whether you should call it that because the demand is obviously there. Well, then there was the 1996 tour and there was the 1998 Future Road tour and then there was the Carnival of Hits tour and then there was the uh, Golden Jubilee. And the the catalyst for the Golden Jubilee was, um, I think it was Athol, was at a cocktail party or something and someone planted the seed saying... Isn't it coming up to 50 years for you, for you guys? And it was like, well, actually it is when you think about it. So he sort of flagged it with the other three and said, you know, do we 
do we celebrate 50 like we did the 25 years? So it's a bookend, if you like. And so that's really how it came came to be. And it was preempted by a birthday party. So the Seekers had a 50th birthday party in Melbourne that was for media and, and dignitaries and, you know, the Premier was there and the... Um, uh, the, the, a lot of that was televised and, and whatever. It was a major event and then the tickets went on sale. Mm. And the beauty of the 50th uh, tour and this Golden Jubilee sort of occasion was that there is actually archival footage from the movie The World of the Seekers uh, that uh, shows Judith sitting in the aircraft wistfully looking out the window saying, I wonder if we'll still be still be recording in 50 years' time. And, of course, that was used to great effect for the subsequent Golden Jubilee tour with the big screen behind the group and uh, they would come out singing Come the Day in the 1960s and then they would, it, the group would then lip-sync. It would be lip-synced to the, the current uh, 2013 version of the group and it worked a treat and I think the audience were totally mesmerised by seeing that link to the past, which was so beautifully uh, realised. And the other... Um amusing aspect of the uh, DVD the, and the, con the concert tour and the subsequent DVD is from the same special that the grab you mentioned with Judith came from, there is a sequence where they performed Music of the World at Turning as very old people in a nursing home in wheelchairs. So that was also used, the footage of that was in the, um, the tour because they'd live long enough to become the people, not that they're in wheelchairs and that old, but just, you know, very funny um, uh, sewing together the two different eras. It was very interesting the way they did that. And just as a, as a tail end to that uh, story about wheelchairs, uh, there was an occasion for the 2000 uh, Sydney uh, Paralympic uh, Games closing ceremony the Seekers came out to sing Carl was over right at the very, very end of the, the festivities. And Judith came out in a wheelchair and it was uh, George Negus who had to make do a voiceover to just say, in case you're wondering, uh, Judith is in a wheelchair purely because she's recovering from uh, an operation. And, of course, people may have thought that she always sat in a wheelchair. Those younger uh, yes. athletes who would never have seen the Seekers before, and some of them were looking up at the stage and thinking, who are these people? But... I was proud as punch. It was wonderful. She'd broken her hip. She yeah, fall, it was a hip operation. That's yeah, right. Absolutely. And uh, that all, that also was an occasion where I have it on video at home, where the um, dum da dum. Usually there's uh, four four intros of that. Sometimes only two, but in this occasion, when Judith started singing, say goodbye. Uh, it, the chords had changed beneath her and she had to suddenly catch up. So I don't know whether someone was playing a trick on her, but because uh, it was the normal intro introduction and I don't know why the backing musicians, I don't think it was the boys, but I think someone uh, did something that uh, put it out and uh, Judith was with, well within her rights to come in at the spot she did and I always was quiz quizzical about that. Why did that happen? We'll, we may find out one day. Or we may never know. We may never know, and it's probably a good thing you can speculate, but it did happen.
to qualify um, before we mentioned that tour, the group had actually stopped doing group things around the t- after 2000 their manager died in 2005 and in 2006 they came together because they were given the key to the city of Melbourne and everyone looked or the, the group looked to me to or with my media background to sort of pull that whole event together because John wasn't with us any longer John Kovac so that really started that full-on involvement on my part and then they didn't do very much after 2006 as a group you know Judith had her solo career so did Keith Bruce had his I'm Australian initiative Athel you know has his business interests and all that kind of thing and then out of the blue we had a call I had a call I was in my laundry pulling washing out of the machine one night and my daughter came in with the phone and said there's a man on the phone for you. And I said, well, who is it? And she said, I, I can't remember his name. He said it, but he talks in a funny accent. So I sort of took the phone and said hello. And I got, hello, this is André Rieux. I'm calling you from the Netherlands. And I'm thinking, someone's playing a trick on me. You know, um, I had a call at home once from Olivia Newton-John and I thought it was a friend of mine, so I hung up on her. <laughs> and she rang back and said, this is Olivia Newton-John. And I <laughs> fell for it again. I think oh, someone's trying to be um, Andre Weaver. Anyway, it turned out it was him. And he said to me, um, I, w- I won't try and do his accent, but he said, I want to um, I want to have the Seekers as my guest on the next um, uh, tour of Australia and New Zealand. And I said, oh, well, that's very nice of you, but the Seekers aren't working um, together as a group anymore and he said um, something like you don't understand I want the Seekers as my guests on the tour you will get them for me and I'm thinking oh, okay <laughs> I said well look I can certainly put the offer to the group but as I say they they you know the reunion has finished now and and uh, anyway he insisted so I put it to the group and surprisingly, well, not surprisingly, but they, they were kind of thought, oh, that is a very good fit, you know, that classic. And it would give them the opportunity after so many years to work with an orchestra again because they sound fantastic with an orchestra. So we went to Maastricht to do the uh, rehearsals for 10 days. And then we, the tour was cancelled, actually, because of um, Andre having a health issue. And... But it was rescheduled and we went. We, it was an 18-show tour of, of uh, Australia and New Zealand. I mean, talk about a well-oiled machine. You know, that that's a big travelling party. You know, it's 110 people, I think. Uh, and it just went like clockwork, you know. it And uh, it was a very, very nice experience. And the group certainly enjoyed working with Andre and his orchestra. But then that led, after because all of a sudden the Seekers were back in people's faces and that led someone at the cocktail parties to say to Athol about the 50-year mark. Um, and when we finally got that together, again, they kind of looked at me because I'd done all the negotiation for Andre Weir and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not really, a, a, you know, in the management role. I've never done it before, but I can... It turns out I can negotiate. So we... Pulled together the Australian tour, it was with Adrian Bond Presents um, in Australia and Kennedy Street Entertainment in um, in the United Kingdom. And once we went on the road on that tour, it 
really felt different to, to me than the other tours that I'd been on with them. And, and I couldn't work out what it was for a while, but it finally dawned on me. It was my realisation, without having admitted it, that this really was going to be the last tour. You know, it wasn't billed that way in Australia. Um, it was just the 50, uh, the Golden Jubilee tour. And it was the Golden Jubilee farewell tour in the UK because by that point, you know, the decision had been made that that's probably going to be it, certainly for the United Kingdom. And then there was the subsequent tour, the Golden Jubilee tour in New Zealand, and that turned out to be the grand finale. So, you know, but of course, Judith had, uh, midway through the start of the Golden Jubilee, had had that serious health issue that just made things a bit more difficult. the um, media response to the Golden Jubilee tour being announced? Well, look, there had been, right in the middle of the reunion years, because they'd done Our Last Goodbye and then did another tour and another tour, the media became very sceptical. It was kind of like, oh, they're doing an L.E. Melba. And they were very sceptical of John Farnham too because he kept doing farewell concerts and then coming back. Um, so they got a bit of ribbing and so did Farnham along the way. But the media being the, the media, if, if, if they can see a reason for something happening, it'll make sense to them. Well, the fact that it had been 50-year mark um, made sense to them. And they'd had, they had that initial burst of publicity with the 50th birthday party in Melbourne and the Premier cutting the cake with them and all those people paying tribute to them, uh, that it... it the, the media kind of got behind it and it was, um, uh, they were very supportive. And of course, we got halfway through that Australian tour in the in May uh, when Judith suffered the brain hemorrhage and was in that life and death situation for six months. In fact, she had to learn to read and write again. And it wasn't known immediately whether she'd be a- able to perform again, you know. Um, so when on her 70th uh, birthday... She appeared in public for the first time um, uh, and was presented with flowers and she faced the media and um, Cyrus Mayahomji from Universal flew in, in, into Melbourne and presented her with a special plaque from Universal representing her 70 years. It was her 70th birthday. And, uh, of course, her solo album, uh, the, the Platinum Collection, was... Um, uh, released by Universal. You and I both wrote liner notes for that. Um, and that was great. The media was really championing them because they were very much seeing it as, oh, my God, you know, she's going to get back on that stage come what may. And that was her approach to it. She really wanted to finish that tour. So the media reaction was great and the media reaction was just as good in the UK. Mm. So... Absolutely, and I also remember very uh, interestingly the uh, the uh, when the uh, th- therapist was working on seeing what they could retrieve from Judith's uh, brain hemorrhage, and hoping we were all hoping, weren't we, that uh, that she would still have the ability to sing and uh, and she would still have memory. Um, she wasn't able to sign her name, I don't think, at the initial stages. But once they asked her to sing a song, I think it was Morning Town Ride. 
and she knew it every every lyric, all three verses. And yeah, that's I, when was, they knew I was actually in that hospital. That room. must yeah. have been a brilliant experience because to hear that, you knew that there there was something very much worth salvaging. Well, the, the interesting thing was that she, if you right at the very start, because I I was the one who took it to, to hospital. She could not answer questions. She couldn't tell the doctor how old she was or what year it was or any of that. Um, all the current stuff. But then when she'd sort of got through the worst of it, the um, her specialist came in and said, well, the elephant in the room is, of course, can you sing? And she said, well, I don't know. Anyway, he said, well, do you want to try? You know, it's just Graham and me here. So she thought about it for a minute and then opened her mouth and started singing Morning Town Road. And as you say, the lyric was perfect and so was her voice. Hadn't affected her voice. And it turned out um, that, you know, time would reveal that in the short term, her she could remember, her long-term memory was very good. She could remember song lyrics and everything from that era. But what happened that night at Hamer Hall after the show, she couldn't recall she didn't, and subsequent stuff. It took a long time, but the team at Epworth were fantastic. They worked with her for a long period of time in rehab and uh, got her back to the point where um, when she was finally released, she'd, she'd gone into respite care. When she was finally released, Athel tentatively put together a, um, uh, a rehearsal to continue the Golden Jubilee tour at a little hall in Mount Macedon up in the ranges in, in um, out of Melbourne. And I drove Judith up there and she just sailed through it. You mm. know, it was great. I have to say that having seen her in the first Brisbane performance on the 1st of May of uh, 2013, which came after the release, I think, of the Platinum Melbourne early in the year, uh, I enjoyed that performance very much. But uh, when they came back to finish the tour and came back to Queensland to finish the shows that they weren't able to do, um, it was really quite extraordinary. I was able to, I still had a very, very clear memory of the performance, particularly of Judith's performance um, in the first part of the show before the Hamer uh, uh, concert where she uh, had the hemorrhage. And her voice, I felt, was better. It was stronger. It was more secure. Um, she had more uh, everything. Every aspect of her vocal cords was was improved, and I was so sort of taken over with um, emotion to think, and I had tears in my eyes thinking, "This is remarkable." After what that poor lady has been through, she's come back singing better than ever, and this is a better concert, the return visit to Brisbane than the even the one in May, as good as that one was. But she was so confident and so secure, and I thought that's a remarkable turnaround. So we're, we're all you know, in awe of her ability to fight back. As Athel used to introduce to the UK audiences, I think, um, uh, he's our little miracle, and she certainly was. Graham, the, the actual incident itself uh, 
was in the uh, it, during May. It was the second week of May, I think. Fourteenth. Um, Fourteenth. Yeah. Yes, I'd seen them in on the first their Queensland uh, initial Queensland concert in Brisbane. So how did that uh, uh, evening uh, sort of? How did it all actually unfold? Well, it was the, the first night of um, a four-night run in Melbourne, sold-out run. And it, I can't remember where we flew in from, but we would have had at least a day off before that concert and we did sound check, and that was all fine. And we did the show, the concert, and that got that went as well as every other show on the tour had done. You know, it was an amazing show. And the one thing that Judith would always make time for was seeing fans after uh, at the stage door or in the green room. Um, it had to be monitored by Rebecca Booth uh, because people would want to you know, talk for an hour if they could and they'd bring a you know, 25 LPs to be signed. So Rebecca was there as the, um, you know, the stormtrooper that moved everyone through. But everyone got their moment and they had their photo taken with her if she wanted to or whatever. And this particular night, there was still quite a bit of a queue coming in, and I was off to the side, and I was talking to uh, Sebastian Baum, who's Adrian Baum, the promoter's son. We were chatting, but I kind of had my eye on Judith, and all of a sudden I saw her just sort of stop with the pen in her hand. And I thought, ah. Oh. Anyway, so I, I went over, and Rebecca sort of looked looked at me with you know, eyes sort of saying something's wrong, and... I saw. I looked at Judith, and she said, "I can't sign my name." And I looked at what she'd signed on the program, and she'd signed Durham. She hadn't done the Judith. And I said to Rebecca, "We need to wind this up." So everyone just got told, "Sorry, that's it." And um, Rebecca got Judith back to the dressing room and got her all ready to go back to the hotel. It was always me that went back. Uh, with the driver to the hotel with Judith, usually straight after the signing. And um, in the cab, or in the, um, the Tarago, um, I thought something was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Uh, and, but when we got out at the hotel, we were staying at the um, the Pullman, well, it was the Hilton in those days, I think, Hilton on the Park. And the staff there were all very nice, the doorman and whatever. And when we walked in, Momentarily, Judith was back to normal. She was saying, you know, they'd say, how, how was the show tonight? And she'd say, oh, we were thrilled with it and whatever. And I thought, oh, maybe it was just she's tired or something. Anyway, we got back to, I got her back to her room and I sort of got her settled and I rang for her meal. She always has a meal in the hotel room. And then I went back to my uh, room, which was across the corridor from her. And I sort of got changed and... I was in a dressing gown and I was checking my email. It was about nearly midnight. I got a phone call from her and she said something like, um, I can't work the television. She wanted to put the television on while she ate. And I, I, because I had the same TV, I tried to explain what you needed to do looking at my remote control. And she said, it doesn't, I, I, it won't work. I said, well, maybe your TV doesn't work, but I'll come over, but I am in a dressing gown. So I went over, and when I saw her, I thought, oh, something's not right here. I couldn't, again, couldn't put my finger on it. Anyway, I, I said, well, give me the remote control for the TV. And she handed me a remote control, but it was for the lights or something. And I said, well, you're not using the TV remote control. Anyway, I 
got the TV working for her and I sort of said, are you sure you're all right? And yes, 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 I just need to go to bed. Anyway, I went back to my room and a few minutes later I got one saying, I can't find my olive oil for my salad, but I know they delivered it. And I went back to the room and I looked at the table where she was sitting and I said, there it is, like it was right, right in front of her. And she said, where? I thought, uh-oh. So I said to her, um, do you know what year it is? Um, um, couldn't get an answer. And I thought, oh, dear, okay. Uh, and I said, where did you perform tonight? And she had to think about that. And she said, the concert hall. Well, it was Hamer Hall, but it used to be the concert hall. And I said, look, I, th well, I think we need to get you to a doctor. No, 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 I can't. I've got, show I've got three more shows to do this week and it'll open a can of worms. I just need to go to bed. And I said, no, I don't think you do. Anyway, she got quite agitated, quite upset. So I thought, I need a moment to think about this. So I said, look, I'm going back to my room for a moment, but I'll come back. I've got your swipe key, I'll come back. And I just walked out of her room and... My daughter called me because my, my wife and daughter had been at the show that night and she just was calling to make sure we got back to the hotel okay and all the rest of it. And I said, oh, well, this is how I don't know what to do because Judith is displaying signs of something having, having happened. And my daughter, then, you know, the young daughter, said, ring nurse on call. I thought, okay. So I rang nurse on call. And they said, can you put her on? And uh, so I went back and I said to Judith, I've got nurse on call on the phone. They'd like to talk to you. So they talked. I couldn't hear what they said, but they talked to Judith and then said, can you put us back to the, the man? And they said, look, you need to get her to a hospital. So I told her that I was arranging a cab and that we'd go around to the Epworth Hospital, which was around the corner. And uh, I, I left her to get dressed. Well... By the time I came back, she'd got dressed, she'd matched all her clothes, everything was perfect. She had her handbag with her, you know, Medicare card, all that, you know, health fund cards and had her hair pinned up and was back to normal. And I thought, oh God, I've overreacted maybe. Got her there. It took two hours um, before we could get her to see a doctor. There was no one else in emergency, but for some reason it took two hours. Anyway, they went off and event, uh, finally the, um, the specialist came out and said she's had a 3.5 centimetre brain bleed. And I'm like, oh God, all right. And I went in to speak to her with the doctor and that's when she just couldn't answer any questions at all. And I said, what happens from here? Because she, there's three concerts the next three nights. And they were like, um, he went, she won't be performing. So I thought, I have to pull the pin. It was three o'clock in the morning by this point. I had to wake Rebecca up, tell her she came into the hospital. We had to wake the promoter up and the boys at four o'clock in the morning and then get a publicist to announce that the tour was postponed. And then there was a press conference. It was a nightmare of a time. And I was aware the whole time. The doctor had said to me, the next 10 days are the critical time because a brain bleed is sometimes the calm before the storm. So it could be the major earthquake after this. So it was very touch and go. But uh, she pulled through. Absolutely. So well, too.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When it comes to clothes, having pieces that you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits your life seamlessly, with quality you have to feel to believe. Whether you're stocking up for any weather or picking up a special gift, you'll find an impressive selection of staples to choose from. So whether you're on the hunt for a heavyweight hoodie, a fleece jacket, or a hardworking pair of warm sweatpants, American Giant has what you're looking for. Each American Giant piece is designed to last and created with commitment to doing things better. And all their products are made right here in America. Because keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Discover the American Giant difference today. Shop Wear Anywhere Closet Staples at American-Giant.com. And get 20% off your order when you use code ANYSTYLE24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Promo code AnyStyle24.